Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Today, we're continuing our coverage of some of the groundbreaking work being done in video games, and Alistair Hearst sits down with the sound team behind Ghost of Tsushima, a giant open-world samurai action game set in feudal Japan. The team took painstaking steps to get players as authentic and immersive an experience as possible. And I believe you're gonna come away with a newfound appreciation for all the work that goes into constructing the sound for these sprawling epic games like Ghost of Tsushima. I really hope you enjoy this episode and we have more coming up over the course of the next few weeks, more episodes on our podcast about games. And so for now, I'm gonna hand it over to Alistair from Dolby Game Developer Relations. Hi, I'm Alistair Hurst, the Senior Game Developer Relations Manager at Dolby. I'm very pleased today to be bringing you some of the sound team who worked on Ghost of Tsushima, a game that I think will become a classic. And today we have the Dr. Reverend Bradley Meyer, who is the audio director on the game, Apoorva Banzal, Senior Programmer, Adam Lidbetter, who is the Supervising Sound Designer at Sony Product Development Group, and Andrew Baresh, Senior Music Editor at Sony Product Development. So this game, to me, it seems like everything came together on this game. Making games is hard and you don't always get everything aligning, but in this game, you know, the game design, the audio, the art, all that stuff seemed to line up and, and create a real classic here. Uh, beautiful world, interesting characters. And so uh, I'm curious, Brad, how long was this game in development? Yeah, we started in... Uh... I think early 2016 is when we, we began pre-production on it. Um, and uh, so it came out in July of 2020. So it was, you know, about uh, five years uh, when from, from beginning to end. But yeah, that was, that was it. Um, you know, we started with a really pretty small team. Uh, the audio team was actually just myself and a sound implementer at that point. Um, and then we brought on a senior sound designer, Josh Lord. We hired him uh, maybe six months in. And, uh, and then we relied on Sony uh, Product Development Group for a lot of help. Andrew was actually on the team from the beginning as well. But, uh, you know, kind of as we were formulating composer ideas and, and how the music would work. But uh, it, was, it was a very small team at the beginning. Great. So how did you onboard new members? How do you bring them on so they understood the vision of the game and keep everything aligned? Um, you know, I mean, there was definitely a lot of reference that we pulled from, uh, as from especially from, from cinema, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, obviously, Kurosawa films, um, uh, Kobayashi. Uh, we also uh, looked at uh, 13 Assassins, which was a remake by Takashi Miike um, from the mid-2000s, and that was another one where... Uh, you know, just watching that, you could kind of see that it's very grounded. And that was that was really a lot of what we were looking for was was kind of that grounded aspect of a Yojimbo, Sanjuro, Ron, 13 Assassins. And so those were kind of a really strong point uh, kind of to get people kicked off and understanding the vision. Um, and the other thing, like I said, is is there weren't a lot of people working on the project early. So that gave us some time to like kind of at least build up a sound palette to help kind of describe the aesthetic we were looking for. And then it was just a matter of polishing it from there. Great. So yeah, tell me a bit more about that pre-production. Did you do mock-ups, you know, um, posting linear stuff? How, how did you, you know, find the sound of the game? Yeah, I mean, I think with a lot of things on this project, it was it started with research. Actually, we did an immense amount of research. Uh, every single team did because you know we're really having to learn this entire historical time period. It really happened. It really existed, and we wanted to, while taking creative liberties where necessary, we still wanted to do the time period and and the content justice. So it really started with, you know, research. I mean, researching what kind of armor did Mongols wear? Okay, it was boiled leather. How do you make boiled leather armor? And actually doing experiments of making panels of boiled leather armor. What kind of armor did the samurai have? It was more paper-based. So how do you make strong armor out of paper? And 
um, you know, what kind of, of shoes did people wear? What about the horses? And so it was, it was just constant, uh, research and then just going out in the field and recording. Um, we employed, uh, our team at, uh, Sony Japan studio. Um, we had a great relationship with, uh, Kitahara-san and Terasaka-san and they lent us, uh, a, you know, decent portion of their team to go record throughout the, the main Island of Japan, uh, to capture a lot of ambience for us. Um, and all of these things really kind of helped inform kind of how the game was going to sound. Great. Uh, and in terms of identifying all the technical systems that you were going to have to build for this game, cause obviously there were a lot of them, um, was that early on or was that just as you move through the process, discovering things that were missing? How did that process go? A little bit of both, but it was mostly early on. I mean, you know, a couple prime examples were we knew we wanted to have a really deep music system. So, you know, Andrew and, and Aporba and I, we started talking early and trying to figure out kind of what the edges were, where we were going to want to have, you know, unique music or music changes and so we started working on with the system from Infamous Second Son and kind of building on that, making it more flexible. Um, and then the other kind of big example of that that Aporva could probably talk about more is our ambient system. And, you know, just the fact that, uh, you know, we were a really small team, uh, but we needed to make, uh, you know, a gigantic game. And, you know, I think the size of the game uh, was was huge uh, compared to what we'd done before and compared to the size of the team. So it, for us, it was really about figuring out ways that we could do things smartly and build systems that were scalable so that we weren't having to spend, you know, years of, of our development time just trying to maintain the systems, but rather that the, the data could drive them. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, Porva, let's dig into uh, some of those systems you, you, you built. It's a huge world. I'm curious, you know, how did you scale up everything that you needed for that uh, without losing flexibility and generality? You know, what systems did you build for this game? Yeah, so I think the cornerstone of what we built that kind of represents the uh, flexibility without loss of general generality and like design agency was the ambient music system or ambient sound system. Um, and the the idea behind it was to use procedural technology or procedural generation with some data points and also uh, the driving and decision-making content that Brad provides and the other sound designers would populate uh, to basically, in the area around the player, play different sounds and always make it nuanced enough so, such that any area sounded like uh, it was soaked in this kind of ambience, ambient landscape. No. Remember Sago Bridge? We strike quietly, or they kill the monk. So it never, it never seemed like the player was alone, uh, unless we intentionally wanted them to feel alone. Uh, so it didn't matter where in the environment you'd go, even if there was no enemies or other people, you always had this sidekick that was the environment or the ambience itself. And so uh, the ambience, like the audio itself, did a really good job of playing off of what the visuals were and reinforced that kind of melancholic kind of journey that Jin has through the entire game. A lot of it comes down to uh, making an authoring system that's easy enough for designers uh, to use and doesn't eliminate the designer agency that exists. And so we use Excel sheets uh, to drive uh, what sort of information that was provided to the system. And then the runtime used that along with some statistics and probabilistic methods to generate what sounds would actually be played at runtime. And uh, those two systems together, the kind of that authoring flow with the system together, produce the, the sounds that you hear. And, uh, and these the were for the different biomes that you, you moved? Because there's tremendous variety in there. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the variety that we got was, uh, as, you, as you suggested, on these different biomes. And so we actually authored an individual Excel spreadsheet for each biome. And each spreadsheet contained uh, you know, a list of all the possible sounds. No. 
and within each sound, it's actually like a group or, or grouping. We actually have individual um, variety for those sounds itself. So a bird may actually have five to 10 different uh, clips that might play, but uh, ostensibly the logic behind it that's driving it uh, is the same. Um, and so we just randomize the selection of those at runtime. And so that way you don't, you don't get this oral fatigue that uh, we originally were encountering and, and kind of noticing. Um, but you also make it simple enough so that the designer doesn't have to like specify each and every single line or every single sound and when it should play. So it abstracts out, you, you, you definitely lose some of that control, but the flexibility of the system makes it such that you don't miss it. You don't miss that losing that flexibility. Right, right. How about things like um, that can suck up a lot of time, you know, things like footsteps or Foley on the characters, things like that. Did you have anything for that that sort of sped things up? Yeah, I mean, there's kind of a mix. Uh, a lot of the existing technology that we had uh, integrated well enough with, with audio. Um, there are some things that we did with footsteps where uh, some of our tech artists actually generate, created a tool that allowed animators to automatically tag where footsteps began and ended or a foot locking actually happened. And so that way we had the timing of the footstep down uh, for, for not all animations, but many of them. Uh, with the flexibility that a sound designer could go into the animation and change when uh, what that window was. And what that meant was uh, it eliminated a lot of the overhead of having an individual having to go into those files and tag every individual one. Because an animator just doing it while they're doing their normal animation work was able to uh, kind of add that as part of their flow. Um, and so immediately, even without uh, a sound designer going in and kind of changing the windows to be exactly what they wanted, you had the initial sound of uh, footsteps happening. And then at runtime, we have uh, basically dynamic, um, a dynamic understanding of how heavy a footstep might be. And so all that information combined with the type of uh, action or animation that the player is currently doing goes into the sound system. And Brad, in this case, or the sound designers in this case, have um, this kind of com not complicated, but like a robust and detailed matrix of what to play at that time. And so with all the information that's provided from the engine to, to the sound engine, we, can, we get this variety and this rich kind of context. And, and then actually the other thing worth noting there is it started just for footsteps and, and just doing that, that means saved months and months of, of time for an implementer. Uh, and then we were able to leverage that same system to also handle all of the, the Foley and, you know, just clothing movement for locomotion as well. So we, we basically were able to offload, I mean, you know, probably what would have been 60 to 70% of all of our animation tagging of all the locomotion just by having the animators tag where the feet needed to lock onto terrains anyway. Yeah, helpful, especially, yeah, with all the different outfits you can put on and things like that. So having to swap all that Foley out. Um, how about the combat animations? Those can sometimes take up a lot of time too. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, what we ended up doing for combat is uh, a programmer uh, gave us a script um, that we maintained through the project. And that was really great because basically the script was looking at the predicted outcomes of every combat interaction. So when uh, you were going to get blocked by who and what weapon when you were going to hit them and how, what weapon, et cetera. And so rather than us having to tag every animation, we just kind of maintained the script that allowed us to just go through and, okay, well, here's, here's the block for the katana. And if the katana is hitting uh, this guy, we want this sound to play. If he's hitting him in an upward strike versus a downward strike, we want these sounds to play. If he's getting blocked by a spiked shield or a heavy shield, we want these sounds to play. So it was this really great centralized place for us to be able to put all of the data in for all combat interactions rather than having to go into every single animation, scrub through, drop the, uh, drop the events. And the other really great thing about this is because it was a predictive system, we were actually able to start our sound effects just a hair early. I think we, we could offset it. I think we offset it by 60 milliseconds. And so that 
actually gave us, not only did it give us a little bit of a, of a head in our sound effects that we could design, but it also just made the, the combat feel snappier because the sound was, was just the indecipherable amounts uh, uh, earlier than, than the actual action itself. Huh, interesting. Um, let's turn to music uh, for a bit here. Um, great score, sounds really great, uh, fits in there well. I'm, you know, tell me about you know, how you found your composers and uh, how, how that process worked. Uh, yeah, well, we started our composer search, like Brad said, pretty early on. And uh, we were looking initially, I mean, obviously for the right composer for the project, but ideally looking for somebody who had this background in Japanese music or working on films that had this Japanese aesthetic. So that led us to our two composers, uh, Shigeru Umabayashi and Alan Ashkari. Um, and we got them started, I don't know, maybe a couple of years before we shipped uh, writing music uh, for the game, just putting some suites together and just getting a, a good idea of the, the sound of the game, how it's gonna sound when you're exploring the island, what it's gonna sound like in combat, you know, how much of the Japanese aesthetic do we need to work in there versus the Hollywood score aesthetic. You know, the final result in the game, obviously, if you played Ghost of Tsushima, you know it's a very large open world game, the player has a lot of free agency to do whatever they'd like, whenever they'd like, however they'd like. Some people might sneak into an enemy encampment. Other people might run right through the front door, swinging swords, just alerting everybody. And so we need to take that music that we recorded and get it to scale appropriately to however a player is playing the game. And uh, to do that, we put a system together called the Music Encounter System. And essentially, it's a state-based system. It has a bunch of different intensities of music within it. And we're looking at some criteria from the game, namely the distance between the player and any uh, nearby enemies and the awareness states of those enemies. And so as you're getting closer or further from those enemies and as they're becoming either more or less aware of you, uh, the player, we're scaling that music up and down. Uh, starting with, you know, light explorer music that might play if you're just wandering around the island, you know, experiencing the beauty of Tsushima. Uh, and then it might get more and more tense and intense as you get closer to an enemy encampment and then engage with those uh, enemies in combat. Interesting. So often the, a challenge with systems like that is the transitioning between the various sections of music to make it sound natural, which it does in the game. How did you, uh, how do you approach that challenge? Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's, that's sort of a big part of the process, right? We get the, the different intensities down, but then, yeah, how do we get between those smoothly? And we spend a lot of time or our editors really spend a lot of time digging through the material that was recorded, uh, uh, for these uh, encounter system cues and putting together hundreds, maybe thousands of different uh, transition pieces that'll get us from each intensity to the other intensity, like all, all the different combinations of intensities that can go back and forth. So we, we put in a lot of time uh, uh, really just making sure that that's buttoned up tight. And I'd say by the end of the game, gosh, in our WISE project, I think it's something close to 2,000 different transition rules uh, determining how we get from one piece of music to another just to make it as smooth as possible. Wow, huge. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of um, making sure that the music's appropriate, all the time. How many different types of mixes did you have? Did you did you mix from stems, or, or how did you get the music for the composer to get it into that form so it was fitting so well? So we get a demo back from the composer. We work with the composers on their assignments, either for a bigger part of the game or for a, a system for our music encounter system. Uh, we get it to where it has what we feel we need to to 
fit in the game for that particular part. We'll take that demo, we'll go and record it, at probably a bunch of different recording sessions, namely orchestral, but we'll also do a lot of uh, soloist recording as well to give us uh, the material that we need on the editorial side. Um, that's then mixed in Pro Tools. Uh, those mixes are very large and unwieldy, so our engineering team whittles that down into a smaller number of stems, but still probably 20 to 40 stems that an editor might use. Um, and then we go through, we start playing the game. We, we know we need this type of music here, this type of edit there, maybe no percussion in this version, maybe only the Japanese instrumentation in this version, and assign work orders out to our team of editors. And they just start, you know, going through on a STEM level uh, in Pro Tools, just getting us the little bits and pieces of music that we need uh, to score the, the rest of the game. So let's uh, dig into some specific sounds and systems. Um, I think one of the, the really great mechanics in this game is, that, you know, it's a huge open world game, um, but you need to know where to go as you go from mission to mission. And there's that guiding wind thing where, you know, you can follow the direction of the wind and the leaves are blowing a certain direction. And if you need to, you can, you know, flick up on your controller on the pad there and you'll, you'll get the sound out of the controller. I'm just curious, um, you know, that was the use of the controller speakers. How did you come up with that? Yeah. I mean, the, the guiding wind was interesting because I mean, like you said, it's such a unique mechanic and it's great to make things like navigation and pathfinding more diegetic. Um, for us, it was a huge challenge because wind was a really big part of the game in so many ways. There was the environmental wind, which, you know, the wind was always blowing in the game. So there was always movement because that was really a, a core direction from art direction and creative directions that the world must be alive and always moving. So we had to kind of contend with the kind of ambient wind. And then we had this additional wind that was kind of handling the navigation. So obviously super critical to, to gameplay. Um, so we designed a system that was uh, three sounds that kind of traveled along splines, like in the direction of your objective. And they were each independently aware of the kind of the sub biome that they were traveling through at any time. So we could get these really unique wind gusts based on, on what they were traveling through. Um, and that was on the original version of Ghost. That was one of very, very few sounds. Uh, I can't actually think of any others, but it was one of very few sounds that we actually put through the speaker controller. And, you know, the, the speaker controller for me is I, I treat it like an LFE channel. You know, you use it sparingly uh, where it really makes sense for, for the gameplay experience. And in this case, it was like, well, you know, it's obviously very personal to the player. It's something that, you know, they're, we want them to hear and to know that it's there. So that's kind of why we put it through the speaker controller. I think what worked creatively and why it worked so well is, um, you know, kind of the, the fiction behind the Guiding Wind is that it, it kind of first appears in the game with Jin kind of asking the spirit of his father how he can find his uncle. Um, and then this wind blows. And so um, to help differentiate it from the environmental wind, uh, Josh Lord, our senior sound designer and myself went down into our, our bully room and I got, I, I have an immense flute and whistle collection because I have sadistic friends that always buy me flutes and whistles. So we went down to the uh, bully room and re we recorded just me blowing poorly through every single one just to get these interesting, weird tonal elements of, of wind, but kind of having a little bit of a human sound to it. And Josh took all those and, and kind of created that very iconic kind of tonal uh, element that, that makes the guiding wind feel and sound unique. And then I think for the director's cut on the PlayStation 5, the last thing that we added, which really adds a ton, is we had the positional sound, we had the sound in the controller speaker, and then for the PS5, we added a positional haptic. So you can actually feel the wind traveling through the controller in the direction that you're supposed to go. Huh, interesting. So another thing in the game that helps guide you to things is, is that golden bird, which, you know, and it has such a distinctive sound. So as soon as you hear that, you know, you're looking around for it to see where, where it's going to lead you to. I'm just curious, you know, is that bird native to Japan? Where did you get your bird recordings? 
Um, so it, that's it's, it's a funny story because this is actually uh, an example of sound driving content. Um, so I actually recorded that bird in Sri Lanka, um, and it's a, a, a black-naped oriole. It's this beautiful yellow bird with a little you know black neck. And um, so I was in Sri Lanka, and I'd set up my, my mics just recording this beautiful jungle. And when I was listening back to it, I heard that bird, and it was really just this beautiful, iconic sound, and it was well-isolated, so I could actually extract it from the recording. And when we were starting to talk about the guidebird and what it should actually be, um, we obviously wanted it to be visually interesting so that the player could see it and know, oh, this is a special bird that I need to follow. Um, and to me, it was also important. We have to you know, get something where we can actually have sounds for it. So we identified, I think, like six different birds that were visually interesting that do appear in Japan. And one of those was the black-naped oriole. So I, I lobbied really hard of like, can we just please use this bird? Because I've got some great sounds for it. It's very like unique and stands out against, you know, the, the lush, mostly green landscape or even the, the snowy landscapes uh, that we had in Tsushima. So uh, fortunately that one, and that's, that's kind of how we ended up with that bird. Interesting. And, and the other bird sounds? The other bird sounds, uh, most of them were recorded in Japan. Um, like I mentioned before, we had uh, Sony Japan Studio help us out with a lot of that. Um, early on in pre-production, we had a small team travel to, to Japan, including Tsushima. And so I gave a recorder to our animation director, Billy, and I wasn't expecting him to get anything useful, but surprisingly he did. Uh, and then I managed to go to Japan for 10 days around Christmas and New Year's in 2017, I think. And uh, just basically planned a whirlwind trip to just go to places and record specific species. So, you know, going to Hokkaido so that we can get the Red Crane crowns because they're going to be in the game and we need that sound. It's very iconic. And getting whooper swans and getting... Um, the monkeys that we ended up having on Iki Island for, for the director's cut. So it was, it was an amazing experience to get to visit Japan and just to be there and hear it. But uh, that was, that was where most of the wildlife came from. And then I guess there were a handful of birds where they asked for specific species that we did not have. And so I actually created those with my voice by listening to, to samples. Actually, getting samples of some birds, slowing them way down like three octaves, and then performing those slowed down versions and then speeding up my recordings of them. They were, they were good enough for the game. Uh, they wouldn't fool an ornithologist, but uh, nobody seemed to have noticed. Interesting. Um, so the horse in the game, sort of this, your constant companion, I found, you know, as I played the game, you know, I developed this emotional attachment to my horse, you know, it was, it was my companion. Um, and it's probably not a uh, coincidence that it feels like a character. Can you talk more to... Uh, you know, how, how the sound of the horse came together? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'm going to pass this off to Adam in a minute because I've been talking too much. But the horse to me is really interesting uh, because it was touched by almost every sound designer on the project. Um, and it also, I, I think it sounds great. And, you know, I think part of that is just the process and the way that we work. You know, nothing is really precious to anybody. We all just want to make great stuff. And so... We, we started with, I found a natural horsemanship center uh, up here near Seattle. And the reason that I chose this place was because it was far away from traffic. Um, they didn't shoe their horses. So we're, you know, going to get horse on natural surfaces, which was very much, you know, what we were wanting for this game taking place in, in feudal Japan. So we recorded that horse on lots of... Uh, Lots of surfaces, and then I recorded some bridle and tack and stuff from and saddles from this uh, guy. 
Um, and then we ended up working with Sony uh, PlayStation Studio in San Diego, and they recorded a bunch more um, saddles and bridles, and Josh took that, and then he started working on the horse. And then we threw it over to Adam's team, and like I said, I think most of the sound designers there ended up working on it. So Adam, why don't you take it away and, and talk about all the great work you guys did. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I was going to say as well, it was a very collaborative effort, the horse. I think when we when I first came on the project, we Brad came down to um, to our studio here in, in San Mateo and uh, we kind of played through the game and identified the horse as one of the main characters. And it was, it was obviously we were going to spend a lot of time with the horse. Um, and one of the, one of the great things, I mean, I came on the project probably a year or so before the game shipped and there was already the game, it already looked and sounded pretty good. Um, so there was already stuff there. Like Brad said, he recorded a horse and they had all this content. Um, so it was just a case of polishing it really. Um, we just wanted, uh, you know, spend, uh, spend some time. Uh, making it sound as good as possible. I know Rob Castro, one of our sound designers, worked on the the breathing and all the vocalizations. I, I think he spent a couple of months doing that. Um, and um, I worked on a, a bunch of footstep surfaces, um, lots of sweeteners. Um, I think Mike Niederquell as well, one of our sound designers also worked on some, some footstep stuff and some breathing stuff. So, uh, yeah, a lot of people worked on the horse. Um, uh, yeah. And it's just, it was a, is a really important character. And I think we wanted to spend, uh, a decent amount of time getting it right. Um, I think I, I had played another game, uh, kind of recently while I was working on it, which, I wasn't too keen on the horse sound, so it was kind of fresh in my mind. Is like, you know, I wanna, I wanna make this horse sound good. Um, uh, you know, so yeah, we just, we just spent a bunch of time with it, um, cleaned up Brad's recordings, which already sounded great, and just, uh, yeah, just polished it really. Uh, Apoorva, I just want to get back to you for a bit in terms of systems because it's come up, you know, in the background. It's like, oh, there was a system for that, system for this. It's such a huge world. Uh, did you come up with any systems uh, for dealing with reverb and first reflections or anything like that to help save time? Because I, I imagine that could have been, you know, a full-time job for somebody for quite a while. Uh, yeah, and it kind of was for a little bit. Um, yeah, we implemented our own bespoke uh, amalgamation of occlusion and obstruction, uh, as well as a kind of simplified early reflection system. Uh, thankfully, we had a delay plugin that, uh, it came from PG, PD Sound, or was it? Yeah, it came from Sony Europe CSG. Yeah, so it came from from a partner uh, team over in Sony, which enabled us to provide, by providing some information in the game, such as how far are certain surfaces in cardinal directions relative to the player, uh, we could delay entire sounds and play them back as like a basically a very cheap early well relatively early cheap and kind of simplified early reflection and then our obstruction inclusion system that was something that we 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 ended up exploring a couple of different options uh but it was entirely uh internal in terms of what we came up with we ended up going with simplified ray ray casts that uh just feed uh some sort of some information based on the material that they hit and the distance and a bit more logic to the sound system, and then Brad was able to kind of tweak parameters accordingly. Um, but that the the thing with any sort of system like that, because it is kind of inherently complicated when you don't really have um, any sort of formal structure to it, uh, it, it took a lot of iteration. It took actually a decent amount of time, like um, not necessarily full time, but uh, it probably took about 18 weeks uh, to really hone in on what we finally ended up shipping. And there were still, you know, small tweaks here and there, perf considerations to take into account, and 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 kind of various tuning that needed to go on uh, continuously. Um, so those are the those are the kind of two things that we looked at. On the reverb side, we we don't really do too much uh, technologically. Uh, we mostly just figure out what is the appropriate reverb to play for any given sound, and then we set that, and then 
I believe the rest is taken care of in, in the sound in engine. Wise, yeah. yeah, in how, And so how are you figuring out what the appropriate reverb is? Oh, that's a good question. So uh, there's kind of like two layers to it. Uh, first of all, with the ambient sound manager, we'd actually establish this concept of biomes that are uh, inherently tied to sound biomes, not necessarily the environmental biomes. And so based on which sound biome you're in, uh, you derive what sort of reverb generally you would you would use. Um, however, you know, this case is where like uh, you want the designer to override or be able to override that reverb value. And so in that case, uh, the sound designer has the ability to just stick in a volume and say, okay, the environment here is going to be this particular reverb. Um, and so we use that a lot of places uh, where we had interiors um, and also the transition in between um, coming, you know, from the outside to the inside because uh, you, you want that kind of uh, transitional effect. And so it's kind of this mixture of procedural uh, plus painting of this map, which was the sound biomes, uh, and then bespoke markup done by individual sound designers and implementers uh, just to get the right effect. Um, the, the procedure to you know, implement a, an individual volume was fairly quick and easy, but given the scale of the world, as you mentioned, it's so big, it, it did take the, uh, it was something that we did iteratively over the course of the project. Um, the one benefit of our pre-existing technology is that a lot of that baseline tech was there. So that information was something we could take advantage of throughout the course of the project. Uh, so we covered combat sounds a bit in your pre-production, but I'm curious, uh, you know, in the end product, uh, what you ended up with and, you know, how you got there from, uh, from the beginning and what you, what you learned along the way. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, uh, you know, we, we started super grounded, um, and, and we started with a lot of research. And so one of the first things that we did is we went, there's actually in, in Bellevue where Sucker Punch is located, there's actually a, a Japanese Iaido school. Iaido is, is Japanese swordsmanship. And so we found this Iaido school. And so myself and our animation director went uh, to, to observe a class. And it was really neat to watch because there were the, the masters teaching students and when the students would swing their katana, it made a lot of noise. And when the masters swung their katanas, they were virtually silent. Um, and obviously we're making entertainment. We're not going to follow reality in that case and, and make everybody silent when they're fighting. Um, so, you know, it started with, we, we um, I actually got a katana and a wakazashi made for myself, partially for fun and partially because I knew that we were going to need some props for that. Um, Josh had a sword blank. Uh, we actually uh, talked to our partners down at PlayStation in San Diego, and they sent us a whole bunch of sword blanks um, from God of War that they had used. Um, and so then we just started you know, recording tons and tons of source um, some of it ended up being used for combat. Some of it ended up being used for the UI. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it, like everything else, it was this very long iterative process where we started with something and it wasn't good and we built on it and we kept iterating on it and kept polishing it. And it was another thing that got passed around to a lot of different designers and a lot of people worked on different components. Um, I think Mike Niederquell and Andres Herrera were the two who did the bulk of the polish work, but I know Adam did some stuff and Josh did some stuff. And um, yeah, it was definitely another thing that was, was very kind of touched by a lot of people. You know, there, there was definitely, as, as we were iterating, not only were we working on the sound design, but then also trying to you know, clean up the mix because there were some battles that were crazy and just people all around you fighting. And so we were doing some like, you know, panning and filtering based on the azimuth. So you're really just hearing what's in front of you. But then Aporva integrated an additional feature for us uh, that we called attack priority. And so each, each uh, weapon or enemy had an attack priority. And I think it was, if it was zero, they're not attacking anybody, they're not targeting anybody. If it's one, they're attacking or targeting somebody that's not the player. And if it's two, they're targeting the player. And so we were able to use that to also further tune things so that, you know, if somebody's just practicing shooting a bow and arrow, it's going to be quieter or even potentially have a different sound than if 
there attacking in combat, let alone attacking the player. Um, and so all of those things also really helped us kind of dial in combat and make it sound decent. And I think it was good. maybe maybe uh, even more important for, I think, Legends mode, because there's, like, like Legends mode takes it to the next level when there's, like, the number of enemies that are attacking you. And uh, we always want to make sure the player is informed of directionally where is the attack coming from so they know who to focus on. And because of the chaos of that, the combat that is in Legends mode, um, having this kind of directional priority or having some a semblance of an attack priority gives the player a bit more of a, a like oral cue of where to go. Um, and so I think that was mostly where I saw it uh, or I found it personally useful when I was playing the game. Yeah. And actually, the other thing in Legends mode related to combat is the swords, the combat sounds are totally different as well. Like, well, while we kept things really grounded in the main game. For Legends mode, we, we basically just went completely over the top. Um, you know, all of the sword swings are super tonal, and there's a lot more layers, and then depending on the rarity of your weapon, we add even more layers and just make it more and more over the top. So we were definitely, if, if combat uh, in the single-player game was more like uh, 13 Assassins, very grounded, um, you know, the, the combat in, in Legends mode was much more like just the total over-the-top martial arts films. And I think we actually used one called um, uh, Rise of the Legend as a, a, a good kind of bar for just how much we were wanting to push combat in Legends mode. Cool. Um, one area we haven't touched on is VO. Um... Any interesting challenges with that came up with that, especially you know, during the age of COVID? Yeah, I mean, that was, that was just another one where we were up against the wall of countries shutting down as we were trying to record all of our languages. Um, so it was, it was really, really challenging. Um, and even for director's cut, you know, there was some people were comfortable recording in the studios. Other people wanted and preferred to record at home. And so, you know, just really hats off to our dialogue team and our localization team because, um, you know, I've played some games and you can really tell, like, oh, that must have been recorded at home. That that line, mm, yeah, I guess that wasn't recorded in the studio. And even though there was, you know, chunks of our dialogue that were recorded at home, um, our dialogue team just did such a fantastic job with mastering it that it's, it's really hard to tell. So... Um, you know, they, they've always done a great job and I'm really glad that we have them so I don't have to deal with all those headaches because I, I, I heard how bad it was, but fortunately I didn't really have to experience it besides stressing out about if we were going to get all of our assets in time to actually make our ship dates or something like that. <laughs> great. Um, so any other interesting stories or aspects that I missed? Well, I guess, you know, that one of the crazy things we talk about, uh, a couple of things on the music side that, that I think are really cool about this project are, I think at the end of the project, we have recorded something like eight different Shakuhachi players uh, over the course of both games and all of them spectacular. But I really think, you know, by the end we were hearing, you know, the cream of the crop of, of Shakuhachi players in the world, which is just a really special thing to experience. Um, and, and on sort of, plus sides of being in the, the COVID world uh, for uh, Legends mode, or not, sorry, not Legends mode, the director's cut when we were doing the extra recording uh, for, for that portion of the game. Um, there was a week where I believe over the course of four days, we recorded in China, Japan, Los Angeles, and Nashville, which is something we never would have been able to do before COVID because we would have sent a team to each recording session, had a week or two in between. And uh, so that was just kind of a wild, like, whoa, like, you know, this would have never happened <laughs> if it weren't for, for COVID and the improvements in, in sort of virtual attendance to, to recording sessions. So um, just kind of, kind of wild stuff that happened on the music side. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's so many stories that we could we could share that would probably take up another couple hours of just like fun recording sessions we had and um, just ridiculous props we used to make sounds and all those kinds of things. Um, haptics was that was a really fun and interesting challenge for us. Uh, you know, when we moved to the director's cut, moving to PS5, um, obviously we wanted to do haptics, and I think the scope of what we wanted to do changed as 
more games came out. You know, I think obviously Astrobot when it came out kind of set the bar of of what haptics can be. And then when Returnal came out, you know, again that just kind of demonstrated how great haptics can be. And and for us, we were essentially porting this PS4 game to PS5, so we weren't considering doing everything with haptics. You know, we were not a giant team. The the team for remaster for the director's cut was smaller than than what it was for for Ghost on the audio side. So initially, we were just going to kind of try to reach parity, but actually, you know, be mindful about designing our haptics. Um, and then that quickly became apparent, like, no, we actually, we really need to devote as much time as we can and make, you know, the world come alive through the controller and through through haptic design. So haptic design itself is is really fascinating. And, you know, I'd like to Adam to comment on it too, because it's, it's kind of like a unique form of sound design, right? It's, it's this kind of very small frequency bands from like 50 Hertz to 500 Hertz and really kind of the waveforms that you use and how you design just really affects how this controller feels. And, you know, you've got two speakers so you can, you can pan things to move it around the speaker. And it's, it's just really interesting. But, um, one of the things that I think got us to the quality bar that we were we were really searching for was, um, you know, not too far to- before the end of director's cut. Um, you know, we were we had previously just been doing bespoke haptics for our cinematics. Like, okay, let's just pick the like big moments and we'll do haptics for those. And our technical sound designer uh, R.J. Mattingly, he just went ahead and and just scored an entire scene with haptics, you know, just like, like we have our 7.1 stream for the entire cinematic. He just went ahead and did a stereo stream for haptics. And it was like, yeah, this is really good. And he was like, it didn't take me long. It was, it's actually really easy to do. So Aporva uh, basically uh, implemented a system so that along with our 7.1 stream, if, if there was a haptic stream, it would just automatically stream that as well. Um, and so we were actually able to use a couple of the sound designers from the Returnal team. Um, and we all kind of just hopped on and did a few scenes. And, uh, and we ended up getting every single um, cutscene scored that way uh, for haptics. So that was, that was really great. And yeah, Adam, I'd be curious to, to hear your thoughts on, on haptics. Yeah. Haptic design is a a funny one because you don't often get, you you don't often design sounds uh, that you don't end up hearing, which is kind of crazy. So you can do things that you, that kind of break all the rules in terms of like, I'm going to boost this EQ by 30 dB at like a hundred Hertz something crazy like that because you're never going to hear it but you know you just you're just feeling it so you know the workflow would be to you know plug your controller into the computer um and just mess around with a synth and you don't even have to listen to it sometimes it's better if you don't hear what you're doing because you have preconceptions about like what 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 sounds good but really you're just when you're designing haptics you just want to see what feels good so just mute the audio or take the headphones out of the controller and just play around with a synth until you feel something uh, that feels good, uh, you know, and then you listen back to it and you're like, oh man, <laughs> sounds terrible. But, you know, it works. It works well as a haptic. So yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting process. So after you went through that, were there any sort of general rules of thumb that you came to, to learn in terms of that process to help speed things up? Well, I mean, apart from the fact that don't, don't listen to it, I think because, <laughs> yeah, really, because otherwise you, you're trying to make something that sounds cool and uh, it won't necessarily feel good. But I think um, panning helps a lot with haptics. Uh, we've got, you know, in the controller, it's a stereo, I don't know what it is, like a vibration uh, controller. Um, and it feels good when you have something that uses that stereo image left to right, right to left, or you can use, you know, uh, stereo width plugins and automate that kind of stuff. Um, so any kind of automation, I think, works really nicely when there's like a change of, of vibration over time. Uh, making sure that the feedback matches the action so that the, you know, you, you really almost using like an envelope follower on your haptics or just designing haptics along with your sound effects so that they match 
both the, the envelope, the amplitude, and the length, because having that kind of one-to-one -one relationship with the sound and the, the haptic vibration is huge. Um, and then we found like sometimes doing some really unique stuff just felt really good. There was a lot of, of cinematics where, you know, we were very selective about what we were sending, what we were designing for haptics or sending to the haptics. So sometimes we would send dialogue to the haptics if it was a really emotional shouted line and that would feel really good. Like when Jin yells, Coton Khan in the like scene when he first confronts the Khan, just feeling him shout that felt really good. There was um, at the end of the, um, the Ghost of Yarikawa mission, uh, the music just gets so big and epic there. And so that's actually what we're sending through the haptics is the music so that you're feeling the music as you're hearing it. So yeah, it's just really a, a fascinating new mix tool, really. And the logo screen. <laughs> right, and the logo screen. Yeah, people were very impressed that we sent our cinematic uh, track for our logo screen through the haptics. And it was just because we had the uh, the technology that Aporva built. It was so easy to just, oh, well, we've got this movie, so I can just make a haptic version of that soundtrack. And now the controller comes to life as soon as you put the disc in. All right, well, I'd like to thank you uh, for taking the time to uh, talk with us today. And uh, I'd like to thank you for making such a great game, spending many hours in it, and uh, really appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thank fun. you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Alistair, and thank you to the folks at Sucker Punch and at Sony Interactive for helping put this conversation together. As I mentioned, we have a couple more episodes coming up devoted to the incredible work being done in gaming, so please make sure you are subscribed to us if you're not already, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in our show notes, or you can just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, thanks for joining us. This has been Sound and Image Lab. It's brought to you by the Dolby Institute. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry with production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thank you for listening.